with Christ my Savior and my God. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are grateful for this day, the Lord's day. Help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, help us not be attracted or distracted by lesser lights, but to be completely dedicated to the great light I am, the Lord Jesus. Help us now, we pray. Your people, we need your help, O oh God. We're a needy people. And apart from you, we can do nothing. So fill us with your spirit. Give us listening ears and a heart for your glory. In Christ we pray. Amen. Have you ever judged someone for their sins? And those sins that they commit are actually sins that you personally commit. If we have done that, we're guilty of hypocrisy. We're judging others for their sins, when in reality, we may be doing the exact same thing. For some reason, it's easier to jump to negative conclusions about other people than it's to assume the best about them. In other words, we assume the worst rather than the best. And when we do this, we ascribe to them bad intentions and evil purposes that may not be there. We also reveal something about ourselves. For the faults we see in others are actually our reflection of our own. We understand this. We, when we point to other people, the old saying is, four fingers are pointing right back at us. And the main point that I want to get across today, which is in our bulletin, is this. Holy hypocrites are quick to see other people's sins, but never their own sins. This is a call to holy hypocrites. Maybe that's us. I want to remind us of the background, which is the Sermon on the Plain, or also known as the Beatitudes. And we see this starting in verse 20. And in last week's sermon... Jesus commanded his disciples to do something very, very specific. To love their enemies. To do good to those who hate them. To bless those who curse them. And to pray for those who mistreat them. Very challenging sermon. But I want to bring our attention to the end of verse 35 and all of 36. Because these two verses really drive today's sermon today's sermon it says here in verse 35 but love your enemies do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you'll be sons of the most high for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil and here's the final command be merciful even as your father is merciful that text or that verse drives today's sermon. So Jesus explains that God, the Most High, is kind to the ungrateful. He's also kind to the evil. Prior to our conversion, that referred to us, and maybe that still refers to us at some level. But we need to be mindful of this final command, be merciful. Why? Because your God and Father is merciful to you and to me. 
Jesus is very clear as he provides instructions for all of his disciples how they are to relate to one another, how interpersonal relationships are to work. And the centerpiece of this sermon is mercy. If you're going to have relationships with others, brothers and sisters in Christ, or your own family members, or your co-workers, there's a point of application here that you have to start with mercy. And there's three points in today's sermon, or sub-points. Number one, you'll see this in your outline. A disciple's temperament. A disciple's temperament. We see that in verse 37. I'm really talking about a disciple's spirit or attitude. Number two, a disciple's vision, starting in verse 39. And number three, a disciple's self-evaluation, starting in verse 41. And I'm going to spend most of today's sermon in point number one, a disciple's temperament. Verse 37 says, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Verse 37 is one of the most misquoted, misapplied verses in the entire Bible. Don't you judge, because the Bible says don't judge, therefore you're not ever allowed to judge anyone at any time. This applies to many Christians and non-Christians. They absolutely love to take this verse out of context and create their own meaning to it. In other words, they're saying, don't you dare criticize my words, my actions, my lifestyle. You can tell me about anything else, but you can't touch that. Many people do not like to be informed or told that they are in sin. But think about this. When a person says, hey, don't you judge that other person, isn't the person who just stated that just judge the person? That's a judgmental statement. You can't judge that person, Pastor Rolo. Well, your statement to me is a judgmental statement. We don't see it that way, but it's true. But I want us to see from God's word today that there's a right way to judge and a wrong way to judge. And so Jesus is referring not to making moral judgments. He's not referring to that. It's not about moral judgments. The right kind of judging is with grace. The right kind of judging is with mercy. Jesus is referring to the wrong kind of judging called judgmentalism. Judgmentalism. And what is judgmentalism? I think we're all guilty of this at some level. It's a critical attitude or a critical spirit. It's a condemning attitude and a condemning spirit. I've been here 23 years. I've seen many examples. People coming into the church. They want to puff out their chest and let everybody know what they believe. And it doesn't matter what anybody else believes. It matters what I believe, and I want everybody to know about it. So there's a theological judgmentalism there or it could be if you don't agree with me I'm going to condemn you maybe not actively but passively by disassociating myself from you but Jesus is referring to the wrong kind of judging a critical or condemning 
attitude. So we're not talking today about salvation. We're talking about day-to-day Christian living, Christians living with Christians, Christians intersecting uh, and having relationships with other Christians. And this applies, obviously, in our broader relationships. But we're talking today about sanctification, how a Christian is to live their day-to-day Christian lives. And here's one of the things that is very clear from today's sermon. Whatever standard that you apply to others, that same standard will be applied to you by God. Let me say that again in case we missed that. Whatever standard you apply to other people, God will apply that same standard back to you and to me. That's the point. So if we remember verse 36, be merciful even as your father is merciful. The consequence to mercy is this, that mercy voids out the wrong kind of judging. Mercy voids out the wrong kind of critical, condemning attitude. In other words, if God has been merciful to you, don't you owe it to others that you be merciful to them. Jesus does not say, or he goes on to say, condemn not, and you all will not be condemned. Remember, Jesus is talking to his disciples about relationships. And so this is the same basic idea about about not judging others. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. So Jesus' disciples are not to render some sort of guilty verdict on another. Again, whatever standard you apply to others, that same standard will be applied against us. So does this mean that as Christians, we never have the authority or the right to judge others in a kind and gentle way? Because, Pastor Rolo, you just read in the verse, judge not lest you be judged. Does that mean we can never judge our brothers and sisters, especially if they're in sin? Does that mean Christians are not allowed to make moral judgments regarding sin according to the word of God? Here's the answer. The Bible gives individual Christians and a gospel-centered church the authority to deal with sin. For example, Matthew chapter 18 Matthew chapter 18 is the text that God has given to his people to make moral judgments, which is the right kind of judging, by the way, if we do it according to God's word. And if we love the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, then we're going to take Matthew 18 seriously. So when there's sin in a relationship, one brother or sister has sinned against another brother and sister, the goal as Christians is to always resolve that in a loving, biblical manner. And in verse 15 of Matthew 18, the brother who's been offended by another person's sin is supposed to go to the offender and say, brother, sister, can we talk in private? That's key, not public. I want to talk to you about something. I want to talk to you about this 
sinful statement or action. And if that's not resolved at that level, the next verse, verse 16 says, then bring one or two witnesses with you. And then hopefully resolve the issue. And then the very next verse, verse 17, if it's not resolved at step two, you take it to step three, and you let the church be aware of this sin. And the church's job is to go after the sinning member and call them to repent, to come back to their first love, come back to Christ. And if they don't do that at the warning of the local church, then we're to treat them as a Gentile tax collector. In other words, we're to excommunicate. And so we may be thinking, well, that's not loving. I would argue that it's loving to let a brother and sister stay in their sin. It's not loving to do that. The loving thing to do is pull them out of that sin. So why do I bring this up? We need to make a distinction between actual sin and personal preferences. Somebody asked me just this week alone, Pastor Rolo, what do you think about this person who has offended me? And my first question to them is, is it actual sin? What is sin? What does the Bible say about sin? What is the definition of sin? And if it's a biblical definition of sin, we have to understand, first and foremost, they've sinned against God first. And against you or me, second. And if it doesn't fall under the parameters of sin, then it's a personal preference. There's a distinction between sin and personal preferences, and we need to understand that. We need to understand that there are moral judgments for sin, not necessarily personal preferences. Sin is a violation of God's law. And when there's sin and no repentance, there's judgment. Moral judgment by Christians and the church. In Matthew chapter 18, the Lord has given his people the authority to deal with sin. To deal with the sinning members so that they would come back to Christ. We're not in the business of trying to win an argument just to win an argument. We want to win them back to Christ. So the Bible gives us authority to judge. And many times we take, do not judge lest you be judged, way out of context. In the ultimate sense of legal judgment or salvific judgment, God is the great and mighty judge. And at the same time, we need to be careful how we treat each other in our personal relationships for the glory of God. In our day-to-day Christian living, there's a right way to judge, and there's a wrong way to judge. And if we, don't, if we do not want to receive some sort of judgmental attitude, critical spirit from others, then we don't need to be judgmental towards others. Again, this is a matter of mercy. A matter of mercy. So Jesus says, forgive and you will be forgiven. The word forgive literally means to release, but in our context today, it means to pardon. Pardon from what? Because there has been a violation against the law. There's a legal crime. And so because there's a legal crime, there's a legal punishment. And to forgive means to pardon from that crime. In 
the sense of the Bible, it's sin. We've committed crimes against our cosmic God and judge with our sins. And so Jesus says, forgive and you will be forgiven, or pardon and you will be pardoned. So we need to be clear here that when we forgive others, this, is, this does not mean that that's how we get into heaven, simply by forgiving others. Only God forgives sins through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So if I forgive my dear brother Glenn over there, that doesn't mean I go to heaven. That just means our relationship is made whole again. But that does not mean my relationship with the Lord is right. So we don't take this out of context and think that simply because I've forgiven another person, now I'm forgiven by God. No. Sinners are only forgiven through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus is referring to forgiveness within Christian relationships. And to say that I'm forgiven of all my sins by God through faith alone and Christ alone and not forgive my brother and sister who are image bearers as well, not forgive them, means that you and I are not forgiven by God. Let me say that again. To say that I am forgiven and we are forgiven and you don't forgive others means that you're not forgiven by God. And you may be saying, Pastor Rolla, I need a verse for that. I'm happy to provide one. Matthew 6, verse 14. Matthew 6, verse 14. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Is this a works-based salvation? No, that's not what we're talking about. If Jesus' disciples pardon or forgive others who have sinned, their Heavenly Father will forgive them. But if they don't, be warned, neither will the Father forgive them. In other words, Christians, you cannot claim, we cannot claim that we're forgiven, that we've received God's grace, that we've believed unto Christ for salvation when we haven't forgiven others. In other words, if you've been forgiven, the fruit of being forgiven by God is you forgive others. That's the evidence. So to claim that we have God's forgiveness and not forgiven others, we can't claim that we have received genuine repentance and faith. One leads to the other. The two are deeply connected. I wonder if we say the following prayer in an empty, cold-hearted, robotic kind of way. Matthew 6, verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts. Why? As we also have forgiven our debtors. When we sing that, when we pray that, when we recite that, we are saying to the Lord, Lord, forgive me because I've forgiven those who have trespassed or sinned against me. Do we mean that? 
Have we actually forgiven our debtors? Or is there anyone here in this congregation that needs to forgive a brother or sister in Christ within our church family? Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are not called to hold grudges. We are not called to hold grudges. Because you've been forgiven in Christ, therefore you can forgive others. Matthew 18, verse 23, is a great example of there is no limit to forgiveness. Do you remember in that text, Peter asked Jesus a very specific question. When my brother comes to me and sins against me, how many times am I to forgive my brother? And then he gives the answer to his own question. And he says, as many as seven times? Seven in Hebrew culture is the number of completion, is the number of perfection. So if I have forgiven him seven times, I've done my part. I can check off the box. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, I do not say to you, Peter, seven times, but 70 times seven. 70 times 7. If you've got a calculator, that's 490 times. And what's the point? The point is not that at 491 times you've forgiven, or you've, you've forgiven them 490 times, you can now, at 491, no longer forgive. That's not the point. The point is you keep on forgiving. You keep on seeking. You keep on being eager to forgive. That number 490 is a number that's so high within biblical context that no one can keep receipts and no one can keep score. They sin against you, you forgive. They sin against you, and you forgive. But in reality, what we do is they sin against us, and we hold. And they sin against us again, and we hold tighter with the other hand. And we hold grudges, and we're not willing to open up our hands and forgive. Because in those moments, we've forgiven or we forget how much we've been forgiven by God. We say, I am the king of my kingdom, and I'm the queen of my home. And nobody destroys my kingdom. And I will no, show no weakness to anybody, because I'm going to be strong. That's called pride. That's called pride. One of the greatest sins in all of the Bible. The point of this text here is that there's no limit to forgiving others and we must be eager to forgive a parable is a short narrative a short story that has symbolic meaning and many of the bible or biblical writers they use figure of speech or allegory but in matthew 18 which we just talked about jesus gives a fuller explanation of there's no limit to forgiveness Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. You remember the story, right? And so the king calls in the first slave or the first servant, and he says, servant, you owe me. Pay me what you owe me. You owe me 10,000 talents. One talent was the highest form of currency, and to multiply it by 10,000 means it's a number that's uncountable. You can't reach that number. That's the point. 
of using 10,000 talents. And so the first servant or the first slave says to the king, please be patient with me because the king made the decision that since you can't pay me, I'm going to sell you, your wife, your children, your entire family, and all your personal belongings so I can get my money back. And the slave says, have mercy on me, king. Have pity upon me. Be patient with me. I will repay. And so what does the king do? In kindness, the king forgave him. The king, out of pity and great affection and compassion, released the servant and forgave him all his financial debt. And two minutes hadn't even passed, that forgiven slave goes out, goes to the next servant, grabs him, chokes him, and says, you owe me a hundred. You owe me a hundred. A hundred what? A hundred denarii. One denarii is equal to one day's pay. So we're talking about less than a year's wages. This slave, the first slave was forgiven of a number, financial debt that was so deep, he could never pay it off. And yet he strangles and chokes the next servant for a hundred denarii. And he says, pay me what you owe me. And the second slave said to the first slave, the same exact thing that he said to the king. Have pity on me. Be patient with me. I will repay. And so what does the first servant do to the second servant? He doesn't forgive him at all. Doesn't forgive him at all. It, it creates such a debacle that the witnesses, the fellow servants, saw all of this, reported all of this to the king or to the master, and the master calls in the first servant, the one who's been forgiven a much. Calls him back in and said, this is what I hear. You have not forgiven your fellow servant. And he says, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because why? You pleaded with me. And I gave you great compassion. And I forgave you of all your debt. You should have had mercy on your fellow servant. And you didn't. And at the end, Jesus explains this parable. Verse 35, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The master took this forgiven slave who was merciless, merciless to his fellow slave and put him in jail until he could pay everything off. When we think about that parable, we owed God a debt so deep, so wide, so long that we could never pay it. And yet God's grace came from heaven to the deepest hole in the earth and pulled us up out of the miry clay and set us on a solid rock, a foundation in Christ. It's amazing, God's grace. Aren't we like the first slave? We want to be forgiven, but yet we don't want to forgive the next person. We ask God, God, please forgive me. And yet we don't forgive the next person. And here's the point. Forgiveness is directly connected to mercy. You forget mercy, you will forget forgiveness. And the reason that we're able to forgive others as Christians 
is because we have been forgiven of not some of our sin, but all of our sin in Christ. We've been given a great salvation because we have a great Savior. We've been forgiven of all our sin prior to our conversion. We were bound, hell-bound, condemned, waiting for judgment. We're waiting for the executioner to separate our head from our body. That's language for judgment. That's what we deserve for violating God's laws. We have violated God's law in so many ways, in word, in thought, and in deed. And yet God is so kind to you. God is so kind to me. God is gracious. God is merciful. How do we know that? Because he's given you and he's given me, Jesus Christ. He's no longer on a cross. He's the risen living Savior. And those who put their faith and trust in him are forgiven. It's not theory. It's a fact. Christ is all. And Christ is enough. And putting our faith in Christ means that Christ has lived and died for us. And we trust him. We trust God's word. See, many of us don't forgive because we've never been forgiven at all. I'm not saying that real Christians can't struggle with forgiveness. I'm not saying that. But there's some of us who have a consistent, constant history and habit of never, ever forgiving anybody. Could it be that God has never changed your heart? Could it be that you've never received God's grace in Christ? Because once God's grace has changed our hearts, we are changed people. We are gospel people. We are forgiving people. We thank God for that. So if you're a Christian, praise God that God has been merciful and is still merciful to you and to me. And if you've never been merciful and you've never been forgiving, it's because God has never changed your heart. When are you going to stop living for yourself? When are you going to live for the Lord? Some people will counter-argue that statement by saying, well, I believe God is sovereign. He's in charge of salvation, which is true. That's biblical. And so God has not changed my heart. Therefore, I'm not accountable for my own sin. My dear friend, this is not an intellectual problem. This is a moral problem. You know right from wrong. You don't need to come to church today to figure out what's right and what's wrong. You already know what's right and what's wrong. You are still responsible for your moral decisions. Whether God has changed your heart or not, that's beside the point. You know right from wrong. And so what you need is God's mercy in Christ. You need to fall upon God's grace in Christ. You need to run to Christ, hold on to Christ, and never let go of Christ. Put your full faith and confidence in the Savior. You need to repent and trust in Jesus. You need to genuinely beg God for mercy. And when that happens, God is merciful to those who are destitute and brokenhearted. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Next, Jesus talks about this imagery of measuring grain in the marketplace. And he's using this language to teach a very important lesson about generosity. 
generosity in verse 38. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your lap. So what would happen in the marketplace is that the person selling grain to the next person would pull out a cup. I was tempted this morning to pull out a cup, a measuring cup, and a big bag of rice, but rice is very expensive. Rice is more valuable than gold, diamond, and silver, at least in my household. I didn't want to lose any of it. But a measuring cup, they would pour the grain in it. And once it reached the top, you would stick your hand into the cup and you would press it down to create more space and compress it down to create more space. And you would pour and keep on pouring. And you would pour so much it would fall all over the floor. What's the idea? The idea is this, is when it comes to generosity, to those who are in need, legitimate need, we need to be gracious and help those who are needy. And we give like we are overflowing that cup of grain and it overflows into our lap. That's the point of generosity. Because why? Jesus didn't spare anything to save us. He gave himself. He gave all of himself for us. So, when we think of this verse, this measuring cup, we need to be gracious. So gracious. So generous that it runs over into the lap of the person in need. Here's the warning, though. For with the measure that you all use, Christians, it will be measured back to you. It will be measured back to you. So if you're a greedy person by nature, like I don't want to help anybody, when you're in need, when the time comes when you're in need, that same measure is going to be applied back to you. There's going to be hardly anybody helping you. But if you're a generous person, because you understand God has been generous to you in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when a person, a brother or sister in need, legitimate need, needs help, we give and we give and we give to fill that need. And when you're in need, the idea is God will provide for your needs when the timing is right. Whatever standard you use, that same standard will be applied back to you. But how should we measure mercy. Are you a merciful type person? What's your standard for mercy? Because whatever your standard for mercy is, that same standard will be applied to you. And that's the disciple's temperament or attitude or spirit. Point number two in verse 39, the disciple's vision. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. So Jesus gives them a warning, but it doesn't look like a warning. When Jesus asks these questions, that there's only really one answer. It's no to the first question, and yes to the second question. Can a blind man lead a blind man? The obvious answer is no. Both are doomed. Both are going to fall into a pit and they can never get out. And the idea is this. There's a time when a disciple, which is a follower of the teacher, 
is simply a pupil. They're simply a student. They learn and they grow, and they learn and they go, grow, and they go through this probationary period. But then there's a point in time that their learning and growing has reached a level of competency and proficiency that they're now equal to their teacher. And the teacher's job is to lead the student in a certain thought or a certain way of life or a certain direction. And in this case, teachers lead in doctrine. Teachers lead in doctrine. So, what is Jesus doing? Jesus is warning his disciples, be careful who you follow. Be careful who you follow and where these teachers are leading you. Be careful of your decisions. Because if you follow a false teacher, you will end up becoming a false disciple. And you both will fall into a pit. And as we read the gospel, Jesus takes this idea and he applies it to the folly or the foolishness of the Jewish leaders who claim that they're teachers of the law. They misinterpret and misapply the law. So in a practical sense, what can we do as Christians? I want to recommend this. Ask the question, what's the purpose of God's law as it relates to God's forgiveness? I already alluded to it. If we think that we can use God's law to gain God's forgiveness and be forgiven of all our sins, then we've misapplied the law and misunderstood the purpose of the law. According to Galatians chapter 2, 16, Galatians 3, 10, 21, and 26, the purpose of God's law is to drive the sinner to Christ. To drive the sinner to Christ. You're not designed to satisfy God's entire law. You can't do that without God's help by the aid of the Spirit. So in order to be forgiven, you need somebody who can step into your place and satisfy all the requirements of the law. But as it relates to point number two, in order for a disciple of Jesus to have spiritual vision and to make good decisions and to understand who they're following, they need spiritual eyes. That applies to us as well. We need spiritual eyes to see Christ clearly, to see the beauty of Christ, the majesty of Christ, and the worth of Christ. We need God to change the eyes of our heart. John 16, verse 13, talks about uh, Jesus explaining the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. So, the responsibility or the work of the Holy Spirit is to guide God's people into the truth of God's word. And so, when we ask the question, who should we follow? We should follow people who take the word of God seriously. That Christ is the center point. That Christ is the Savior. So Jesus is the root of all truth, by the way. Does Jesus not say in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life? No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is the source 
and root of all truth. So if we want to be better disciples of Christ Jesus, we need to have a biblical vision. And I would recommend to us strongly that the way we have biblical vision where we see Christ clearly is that we rely on prayer. We ask God to give us illumination by the Holy Spirit. And we study God's word. Study God's word. I want to encourage you. If you're not reading God's word, read God's word. You may be saying, I really don't know much about the Bible. Can't I just do Duolingo or a YouTube video and just learn the Bible that way? Sure, you can do it that way. But there's no magic bullet. You just have to read the Word of God. you got to commit yourself to the Word of God and read and read and read. And when you're tired, read some more. Study the Word of God. So we need that. A disciple's vision. Point number three. A disciple's self-evaluation, starting in verse 41. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Christians are called to self-evaluate, by the way. We're called to analyze our lives. And Jesus is using contrasting languages or terms or exaggerated language. He uses the language of a log, which is really a beam, and a speck. We're talking about a speck of sawdust. It's very hard to see the speck of sawdust. But it's very easy to see a huge log or beam. And Jesus uses this illustration to point out holy hypocrites. It's easy to say, hey, you've got a sin in your life over there that you need to correct. And not realize we have a sin that are, that's in our own lives that is bigger and greater. Hypocrites are pretenders, by the way. Hypocrites are actors, by the way. These are people who profess their beliefs and actions to one position. And they say, I genuinely hold this belief. And in reality, they don't hold this belief. Why? Because their true face is they're hiding it. They don't want to reveal their real intentions. They don't want to reveal their real position. That's why we use the language of two-face. They show you the face that they want you to accept, but they're hiding their true face. Hence, actors, pretenders, hypocrites. We understand this language. And Jesus warns his disciples how they're to approach the topic of judging others. Are you judging others with a critical, divisive, condemning spirit? Or are you making judgments that are gracious and kind? And the answer to these two questions is this. To the first question, Jesus is addressing pride and self-righteousness. The question is stated in such a way that it shocks the person to 
think about something very, very serious. In other words, you're telling me I've got sin? What? I have sin? That's impossible. The reality is many of us have a huge log in our own eyes. We want to point out the speck of sawdust in another person's life, but we don't realize we have a massive log in our own eye. So Jesus calls them to evaluate themselves. He says, you hypocrite. He doesn't say you're not allowed to address sin. He doesn't say that. And he doesn't say you get the right to avoid any situation that deals with sin because in America, we like to think, well, who am I to judge another person in their sin? I'm a Christian brother. I want to let my Christian brother live in his sin and God will help him somehow, some way. God doesn't give us that option. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, deal with the sin after you evaluate your own sin. That's what Jesus is saying. Deal with the sin in grace and mercy, biblically, after you've dealt with your own sin. That's why Jesus says, take the log out of your eye, then you can tell your brother and sister, hey, you got a little speck in your eyeball. So Jesus is not against correcting others. He's not against making moral judgment. He's not saying you get to avoid legitimate sinful issues. Jesus is actually saying that you have the right to deal with sin after you've dealt with your own sin. Let me ask you this. When we let our brother and sister live in sin and possibly die in sin, is that loving? If we see somebody who's dying of stage 4 terminal cancer and we actually have the cure in this bottle and we hide it in this pulpit and we never tell anybody about it, but yet they could be healed, is that loving? No. The loving thing to do is to pull it out and say, here, take, receive, live. But what we do is we rationalize our emotions in such a way that God will help them somehow. Who am I to judge? There's a right way to judge and there's a wrong way to judge. Again, it starts with mercy because God has been merciful to us. Do we think we're superior than others? Honestly, ask yourself that question. Do we think that we are superior to others? And if the answer is yes, that is the attitude that Jesus is condemning. Or do we come to people with a spirit of humility and concern, recognizing that we are weak, frail image bearers saved by God's grace as well? Many people haven't heard of the name H.A. Ironside. H.A. Ironside was a famous pastor, theologian, church planter in the 1930s and the 1940s. And he tells the story about a bishop, Bishop Potter. Bishop Potter was going from America. He was on a transatlantic uh, cruiser 
to go to Europe. And as he checks on board and he goes into his room, he thought he was going to have this whole room by himself. But to his surprise, he sees a stranger in his room. He sees a roommate. And after he says nice, polite things, he leaves the room and he goes up to the purser's office. And he says to the purser's office, he makes a request that he normally doesn't make, and he says, dear purser, would you please take care of my gold, my silver, and my other valuable items? Because I don't trust the person that's in my room, based off of appearances. And the purser replies, oh, bishop, potter, no problem, I'm happy to take care of your valuable items. By the way, your roommate was here five minutes ago and he did the same thing because of you. <laughs> but think about this. Don't we make prejudgments based off of appearance? Don't we judge people based on how they look? Short, tall, suit, no suit, skin color, political position, don't we make prejudgments? We do. Aren't we like Bishop Potter in many respects? We make prejudgments when we shouldn't. That's to our sad demise. And as followers of Jesus, our temperament, our spirit must be merciful, forgiving, and generous. Our vision must be biblical and focused on our Savior and his word. Our hypocrisy to instantly judge others must be with an eye to our own shortcomings first, to our own sin first, before we address the sins of others. Sermon in a sentence. God's mercy and forgiveness to us in Christ Jesus must drive us to a place of humility in all our relationships. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that you've given to us. You are gracious and kind and merciful. Lord, we owe you our lives for the great salvation that you've given to us in Christ Jesus. Lord, we admit and confess to you that we have sinned against you in so many ways. We have judged others, and yet we ask you to forgive us. Lord, help us to be merciful in all our dealings. Help us to be gracious and kind because you have been merciful, gracious, and kind to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And for that, we are forever grateful. In Christ we pray. Amen.